And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today we are going to do something a little different. We are going to take a journey back to the English Reformation. And specifically, we are going to look at how the Anglican Church came into existence, where it has gone, and where it is today. And to help us on this journey, we have invited Anglican Minister Chuck Collins. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks, Matt. Good to be with you guys. Thank you very much, Chuck. What a blessing it is to have you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Appreciate it. Great to see you again. It's been a while. It has been. I appreciate it. Chuck, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah. I uh, came to uh, Christ when I was 18 years old um, and um, have uh, struggled to walk with him for, for all of these years. I pastored churches in Texas, Florida. New Mexico and back to Texas again and uh, back here in uh, Houston, just north of Houston in Cyprus, Texas, live uh, with my wife. We've got four kids, seven grandkids. Uh, six of them are right down the street. So it's uh, great to be home. Awesome. Beautiful. Yeah, thanks. And are you pastoring a church now? I'm not. I'm not. I'm uh, beginning what we're calling a Center for Reformation Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. And uh, working with some really talented uh, theologians to get this thing going. Okay. And Chuck, what is your official title? Are you a priest in the Anglican Church or a rector? I mean, or are they, or are they synonymous terms? They're not. No, no. I, I'm ordained priest. Um, and uh, I'm what they call a canon theologian of the Diocese of the Rio Grande. So I'm the Reverend Canon. Uh, diocesan uh, ca- canon, and um, so, um, yeah. Uh, and what does that mean to our listeners? <laughs> probably <laughs> absolutely nothing, okay. uh, and, and it probably shouldn't mean much. Uh, yeah, I, I have rector, been a rector of a church. A rector is usually the priest in charge of a, a congregation, and I've, I've rectored uh, five different churches. Mm-hmm. 40 years of ministry. Uh, my last uh, rector position was a uh, interim rector position at an Anglican church, ACNA church in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Matt, that's where you and I met personally. Right. And, um, so that was great. Uh, we were there for five years. Uh, before that, I was in San Antonio for 10 years as rector of Christ Church Episcopal in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And what is the ACNA? The Anglican Church in North America, uh, about 15 years ago or so, they decided that the Episcopal Church had uh, gone a different direction than what historic Anglicanism stands for. And so they began a new ministry. Um, and there are a number of churches, uh, something like 300 churches across the country that are ACNA churches, mm-hmm. lots of dioceses. Um, no longer formally connected to the Episcopal Church at all. Um, I would say more biblical. Uh, by constitution, 
they uh, they believe the scriptures to be God's word and contain all things necessary for salvation. Great. So, um, yeah. Excellent. Okay, with that, what is the Anglican yep. Church, and where did that word derive from? Yeah, that's a, a technical discussion, Matt, uh, okay. that may not be of a, a, a huge interest to your audience. Uh, the word Anglican wasn't even used generally okay. for how we use it today until 1830s. So uh, it was the Church of England, um, and that's what Anglican refers to as the Church of England that started at the time of the Reformation. And um, yeah, uh, coincided with the Continental Reformation going on in Europe, in Geneva, in uh, Germany, and, and all across Europe. Okay. Well, Chuck, take us back to the English Reformation, and how did the Anglican Church catch fire and start a Reformation of its own? Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people, when they think of the Anglican Church, think of uh, Henry VIII. And uh, Henry VIII was king of England, as, as you all know. And uh, there was a political undercurrent to begin a new work apart from the Pope because Henry wanted a legitimate male heir to the throne. But one of the things that I've written about pretty extensively is that the Church of England didn't start with Henry VIII, and we're not a, a, a product of Henry's doing by any means. Uh, the church started at, at least a, 150 years earlier with a guy named John Wycliffe uh, and his followers called the Lollards, um, and they uh, rediscovered the scriptures as the primary basis of authority for the church. And they began to teach it. He was a professor at Oxford and um, probably the smartest guy in, in England at the time and highly respected. And he began to talk about um, the authority of Holy Scripture as the primary authority for the church, not tradition, not reason, but scripture. And that took uh, the church in England, which was the Church of England, uh, back to the scriptures for the first time. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so uh, when I describe how the Church of England started, I look back to Wycliffe 150 years before the Reformation, but I also look back earlier to the Church Fathers um, because we say in our creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And the word Catholic means universal. Um, and so when we say we believe in the Catholic church, we're saying we believe in the church that is based on the apostolic authority of the apostles themselves who wrote the scriptures. And that scripture that was passed down from generation to generation to generation, the apostolic succession of teaching from the apostles to our own day. So I see the Church of England having started in, um, in the first century with Jesus and the apostles. Excellent. So that, that's how we started, um, and um, the so there, there are a couple of things going on at the same time. We have the printing press, uh, which was discovered in 1550, uh, 1450. Uh, Gutenberg, who allowed for the uh, for the proliferation of lots of materials, the Bible in English. You have a rise of humanism. Uh, which is encouraging people back to the original sources, uh, the original languages. You have the translation of the Bible in uh, different languages because of that. Uh, and so William Tyndale comes along and he translates the Bible into English, uh, 1520. Uh, you have all of these things co coinciding uh, to, to make the perfect tsunami along with the political elements of Henry VIII for the Reformation to happen in England. Um, and it takes place in a milder way, I would say, than on the continent, uh, but it's no less Protestant and thoroughly biblical in its orientation, justification by faith um, alone, by, by grace through faith in Christ alone is central to what the Church of England taught, the Anglicans believe. 
the priesthood of all believers, um, along with the priority of scripture and the justification by faith, the priesthood of all believers, the idea that, that we don't need an intermediary like a pope or a bishop or a priest in order to connect with God was central to what the English reformers wanted to do. Uh, so, Chuck, yeah. uh, then uh, Wycliffe and the Lollards then were standing, uh, were opposed to Romanism 150 years be- even before Henry VIII? Yeah, I wouldn't say that, Onig. Uh, I, I, I think uh, what they were trying to do and what the reformers, I think, were trying to do, and I'm talking about Luther and Zwingli and, and Calvin, I, they were trying to reform the church. That's where they all began. And when the church refused Reformation, then they felt like they needed to do something new. But other than that, their primary focus was wanting to reform the church, to work with the structures, but they wouldn't be worked with. And when uh, Henry VIII um, came into power, were the the Lollards then, um, they inherited that uh, authority that was granted by Henry VIII as a, as an official alternate religion? I I should say that Henry started the church of England in the year 1534, but he was never a Protestant. He was a practicing Catholic his whole life. And so um, Again, uh, it's a perfect tsunami of, of all kinds of influences here that went in to make the Church of England a Protestant church. Uh, one of the first things Henry did was he appointed a guy named Thomas Cramner to be his Archbishop of Canterbury. And so um, Thomas Cramner, very influenced by the humanists who took people back to the scriptures and also very influenced by um the Lollards, uh, which was a, which became a very Lutheran way of looking at the church, uh, and um, Thomas Cramner is the one who really defined Anglicanism, the Church of England's uh, what we call formularies, the basic doctrines that are um, embedded in the in the um, documents of the church. Okay, so. The reason why I'm asking is be, uh, is yeah. because in, in in my in the education I received in regards to uh, religious history, uh, Henry VIII formed a Protestant church. So you're saying that's not entirely true. We're talking about a span of between 1534 when he broke away from Rome for personal, political, and theological reasons. Um, the rise of um, states, you know, and individualism became very prominent and a huge force in society. So he broke away from the Pope 1534. And, and I would say that the Church of England was defined Protestant between that point and 1549 with the publication of the first book of Common Prayer by Thomas Cramner. So Thomas Cramner wrote 1549 Book of Common Prayer and 1552 Book of Common Prayer. 52 version is is over the top, decidedly Protestant in its orientation. And, and not only that, let me let me mention that it's it, it's got sensitivity to the doctrine of justification by faith, like no other liturgy that I know in uh, Reformation churches. And also the law gospel um, dynamic is so clear in uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, you begin the service with the, um, the, the uh, Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, which brings us to our knees. Who, who's, who's been able to accomplish that and, and brings us to the point where we have to confess our sins. So there's the confession of sin and then the words, Lord, have mercy. Uh, and then all of that leads to the sermon and the, and the creed, which is the affirmation of what God did for us when we couldn't do it ourselves, uh, fulfilling the law um, in our stead as our substitute. Were the, uh, the alone statements used by Cramner 
in regards to the Reformation quotes, the sola fide, sola gratia, and so on? They weren't, but those didn't come until later, uh, even for, uh, you know, our nonconformist Presbyterian brothers. They're a hundred years after the fact, uh, after the Reformation, really. I see. Okay. Yeah. But there's no question, though, I don't want to leave you any ambiguity here. There's no question but that Thomas Cramner thoroughly believed in the scriptures as the primary basis of authority, divinely inspired, and God's active word in our life. Uh, he believed that, that so much that, that uh, he had the English church, uh, and I mean the members of the congregations in the scriptures, in morning and evening prayer so that you would read through the scriptures in a year. Um, he devised a lectionary so that everyone was reading Ideally, you know, Aunt Martha probably didn't, wasn't as faithful as, as some of the others, but, <laughs> but, you know, he had people reading through the scriptures in a year. Uh, he believed in the power, the innate power of God working through the reading and preaching of scripture. Mm-hmm. Oh, also he wrote the first homily, which uh, is on the authority of Holy scripture. Uh, there's a series of homilies that were being read in every Church of England Church, uh, so that there was a concerted effort to bring the uh, whole of society uh, to conform, uh, ideally, to uh, to the gospel message. Real quick, Chuck. So homilies are sermons, correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, we would call them sermons because they were uh, every bit as long as um, as Tim Keller preaches or, uh, you know, uh, Presbyterians preach today. And uh, so, uh, yeah, they were long sermons, uh, not so much expository sermons back then as um, topical. Um, for example, the first is on uh, Holy, Script, uh, Holy Scripture. There's a, a sermon on justification by faith. There's another sermon um, about... Um, uh, the condition of mankind, humankind, and the need for a savior. Mm-hmm. Going back to Henry VIII, real quick. From what I yeah. understand, he originally wanted autonomy from the Pope. Correct that he wanted to remain Catholic in his doctrine, but he wanted to be autonomous as a church body in England. And right. the main reason was because he wanted a divorce from his wife. Is that correct? Technically, he wanted an annulment, uh, whatever that is. I mean, don't don't <laughs> ask me about what that means, because <laughs> right. I don't get it. Uh, and um, But he technically wanted an annulment so that he could marry Anne Boleyn, uh, his second wife. And uh, Thomas Cranmer came along and found a loophole in the scriptures and and otherwise that allowed him to divorce Catherine of Aragon and and marry Anne Boleyn. So his motivation was not for theological reform by any means. Uh, Thomas Cranmer was different. He he was. He was very interested in not only Cranmer, but people like William Tyndale, Hugh Latimer, uh, Nicholas Ridley, and a number of other famous English reformers were totally committed to the Protestant cause. They weren't called Protestants back Mm -hmm. then. Uh, That word didn't come around for for several hundred years, really. They they were called evangelicals. Mm -hmm. Well, they called Lutherans evangelicals. Yeah, they did. They did. So Thomas Cranmer, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, right? from 1547 to 1553. Is that correct? That's right. Can you please tell us a little bit about the Articles of Faith, which he instituted? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They're called the Articles of Religion or the 39 Articles. Um, If you put them side by side with the Westminster Confession, uh, you'll see the similarities. Westminster Confession was written 100 years later. And so they would use the articles along with a lot of other things, especially Cranmer uh, mm-hmm. and Calvin and the Institutes. But uh, so Cranmer in 1550, roughly, 
wrote the Articles of Religion. They started out as 42 articles, and, and by 1571, when they were determined by Parliament to be the statement, the confession for the Church of England, um, they, um, they became 39 articles by that point. Se several were combined and several were deleted and changed. But Thomas Cranmer was the primary author of the 39 articles. If you read the articles, if you want to know what Anglicans believe, you would read the articles. Uh, the articles were written at the same time as the other great confessions, Luther's Augsburg Confession, uh, and with the same purpose in mind, to bring unity to the, um, to the church and consistent teaching about what this church stands for. Is it true that there were originally 42 articles of faith instead of 39? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Cranmer wrote 42 about 1550. Um, and by 1571, he was long dead. But by 1571, when they were approved by Parliament, there were 39 articles that were agreed to. Mm -hmm. And we understand today that the 39 articles are the ones that we look to as our confession. Sometimes people would say of Anglicans that they're not confessional. Like you would say of Lutherans, they, they have an Augsburg Confession. Or Presbyterians, they have the Westminster Confession. The same really is true historically for Anglicans. Uh, we have the 39 Articles of Religion, and, um, and I think we can look back today on those and, and say this is what the church authoritatively has taught, uh, not only in the Reformation time, but in our own time as well. Okay. Now, draw us a line, Chuck, from the modern Anglican church back to, let's say, the English Reformation and let's see where the church has gone. When did the Church of England start departing from orthodoxy? <laughs> You're assuming that it has. Well, the Anglican Church in England has departed from basic orthodoxy, correct? Yeah, that's way too broad a statement for me. You think so? Man, okay. Um, yeah, I, I think there are some in the Church of England, in the Church... Uh, the Anglican Church worldwide, many who have never departed from the uh, the Orthodox faith, uh, the biblical foundations of our of our heritage. So, right. I guess for, I guess just for clarification, yeah. because like you're part of the ACNA, so obviously you know you're very you're part of a very Orthodox denomination. You haven't departed from basic. Uh, orthodoxy that are in the historic creeds and confessions of the faith. But we do find a lot of liberalism entrenched in the English church right now, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I think the broad statement that the Church of England has departed is not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are a lot of really faithful, biblically-oriented, grounded Anglicans still in the Church of England. Okay. So, um, but things did happen over the years, is what you're asking, I think. Right, right. Yeah. And so in my mind, here's how I describe it. Uh, we've got 500 years of history uh, back to the Reformation. And um, in those 500 years, you have about 100 years um, with the settlement of Elizabeth after uh, Henry Edward VI, then Mary, for five years, and then you have Elizabeth for 44 or 45 years. Elizabeth settled the church into what I understand are the formularies of Anglicanism. And that includes the, the Articles of Religion, the 39 Articles, uh, a, a key formulary, a confession for what Anglicans believe. Secondly, the homilies, which are a series of two collections of homilies that, that were read in at Church of England churches over and over again throughout the year and throughout the years uh, for a number of years uh, that formed the Church of England theologically. I mean, if you, you hear the same sermon every Pentecost or every, every Easter, uh, you're going to be formed by that. And that's what was happening. Uh, the, we also have an ordinal, which is an ordination service for bishops, priests, and deacons that is a formulary. 
And we also have the Book of Common Prayer. And we look back to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer as the foundational document that has defined us. So your question is, how did we get off track? My, my answer would be just simply, whenever we've lost sight of those formularies and what Anglicanism stands for at its, at its base and, and grounding, uh, we, we have lost sight of, of, the, uh, of the priority of the gospel, justification by faith, those kinds of things. Historically, when that happened, um, it's a little hard to pinpoint because it's incremental. There's a guy named Jeremy Taylor, who uh, a scholar um, by the name of Fitz Allison identifies as the guy who, who moved us from basically a Calvinistic understanding um, to a um, Arminian understanding of the faith. And so he came 150 years after the Reformation that would be one big movement away. The Oxford movement back in the 1830s uh, in England, Oxford, England, there was a, a number of scholars who began to rediscover the pre-Reformation church in England. And they began to uh, acquire those understandings and those practices uh, that were opposed to the Reformation understanding of the church and theology. That was a huge departure in my mind. And, and then you have the liberal departure that began in 1890s where scholars began to question the authority of the scriptures and the unity of the scriptures around Jesus. Right. Yeah, please excuse my ignorance for painting with such a broad brush, but the, the fact is that our experience in America has been with mainline liberalism, yeah. specifically with Episcopalians. So we know figures like John Shelby Spong, who are basically humanist. And so that's kind of what we get here. Yeah. And we're not used to getting people like yourself. You know, when we first hear about Anglicanism, we kind of, you know, gasp in the evangelical church yeah. because we yeah. see those kind of figures. And then I met people like you and John Fonville and others who are very orthodox and who are actually reformed in their theology. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard to paint with broad strokes for sure. Uh, I came out of the Episcopal Church. I was a, a minister, a priest in the Episcopal Church for 30 years. Uh, I, I uh, left uh, on good terms with the Episcopal Church, but at a place where I couldn't uh, abide by what the National Episcopal Church was teaching. And uh, I shared that with my congregation and they were totally supportive and and uh, but I, I needed to leave and I needed to do something else. And that's what took me to the Anglican Church in North America. You know, a remnant body of, of uh, Anglicans who consider scripture as their primary basis of authority and um, and the doctrines that defined us in the Reformation. And a lot of people are not aware, but people like J.I. Packer and John R.W. Stott were Anglicans. Yeah, why wouldn't they know that, Matt? They, they should know that. I mean... They should. <laughs> Dr. Packer was my theology professor, and uh, he, he helped form me. Um, Leon Morris. Uh, right. You know, some really great people over the years who have um, contributed to serious scholarship. R.T. France, I believe, is another one. Uh, you know, I don't know that he's an Anglican. I think he is. Yeah, he could be. Or, or he was. Could be, yeah. yeah. But it's funny because what I discovered later on is looking at my bookshelf that some of my favorite authors turned out to be Anglican. Happens every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of surprising. Yep. Was uh, J.C. Riles an Anglican? Yeah. Yeah. He was the Bishop of Liverpool in the 1890s, and J.C. Ryle wrote... Uh, Lots of books behind me, and uh, yeah, he's he's a remarkable evangelical Anglican. So, Chuck, the earliest Christians in our country, or to come to our country, specifically the Puritans, they were Anglicans, correct? Yeah, that's really a fascinating story, uh, and I'm sorry to keep going on. No, 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 no. Tell me if I please if I'm overstepping, but. 
yeah, the, the first people to actually land in, in America were before the pilgrims, uh, before Plymouth Rock and all of that. It was about 15 or 18 years before that they landed in Jamestown. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a ship that landed. And the first thing they did was they, they had a, a chaplain who was an Anglican minister, priest, who celebrated Holy Communion with them uh, in America. So this was 15 years before uh, the pilgrims landed in Plymouth. And, um, and so the first Americans, besides the Native Americans, were, uh, were Anglican. So we want to claim this country for, for our own. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's a fascinating st- story of uh, Jamestown. Interesting. Pocahontas. Uh, brought to faith by an Anglican minister through Jamestown, and uh, so fascinating. We're not talking. We're not talking about Elizabeth Warren. We're actually talking about their their original Pocahontas. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thanks. Gosh, you've got to be careful how you talk these days, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is our last show, everybody. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad to contribute to to this. <laughs> Uh, so check out a question. You did mention that uh, the Anglican Church does believe in this singular uh, mediatory uh, position of Jesus Christ, and he's the only mediator between God and man. Um, and yet uh, Anglicans are considered priests. You just mentioned they're priests. Uh-huh. So can you, for our listeners, can you explain what that means uh, when they're identified as priests? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion around that. And, and the word that we would uh, normally use, even in ACNA, in the Anglican Church in North America, would be presbyter uh, rather than priest. Um, but priest never has had the connotation in Anglican circles as an intermediary or a sacerdotal uh, person between us and God that you would have to go through in order to reach God in some way. So... Um, even though we're called priests, um, the word that we would refer that to in the Greek would be presbyteros, which is presbyter, and in some circles, that's the preferred title anyway. So, but we've never had the idea of of a priest being necessary for us to engage with God in a in a very personal way. For example, I could say that even in the sacraments, it's God who acts in the sacraments and not the, the priest as the instrument of, of God's activity in people's lives. It's God who does the blessing of the bread and wine to make it for us the body and blood of Christ when we receive the grace of God in faith. Yeah. So the instrument then would be faith not the priest. Exactly. Exactly. Just like uh, Calvin. You know, one of the distinctions that your, your listeners might be interested in is uh, the relationship between Luther and Calvin in Anglicanism. Um, we, we're very much with uh, Martin Luther on the basic core doctrines of the Reformation, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, is is very Lutheran, and Calvin obviously picked it up. I mean, uh, it's it's central to what Calvin believed, but Luther was the first guy. And so the way we would describe it is that uh, Luther had a profound impact through Tyndale, through a guy named Robert Barnes and, and other reformers in the Church of England on Thomas Cramner. And, uh, and so Luther is critical to our understanding of what it means to be Anglican. But our sacramental theology is not Lutheran. Uh, we don't believe in um, a real presence like what Luther talked. Uh, he, uh, uh, we would be much closer to a reformed understanding of the sacraments, whereby in the sacrament of baptism and Holy Communion, God works, he does his part, but unless that is received by faith uh, into our hearts spiritually, it has no efficacy at all. And so 
I, I think we would be very much in line with John Calvin in terms of the sacraments. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Kramer and John Calvin were actually friends, correct? They were, they actually corresponded with one another, I believe. They did. They did. Yeah. They, they did correspond with one another. I, I don't think they were friends. Um, and in a sense, they were the second generation after Luther of the reformers. Mm-hmm. Luther was the first guy. He, he's critical. Now, Chuck, I, from what I understand, if I heard correctly, um, I think from a reform scholar, that Calvin actually was willing to become an Anglican if it was going to unite the reformed churches. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they had a council that gathered um, Lutherans and Reformed and Anglicans, the Church of England, uh, together for a, a meeting. And uh, out of that meeting, uh, the, the Calvinists who were represented there were willing to give way on certain matters in order for there to be unity between the Reformed, the Lutherans, and the, uh, the Church of England. Um, so there was talk and, and there was effort made in those directions. Luther wasn't willing. Luther himself was at the meeting. And uh, he sort of threw up his hands. He was a hothead and uh, threw up his hand. And uh, he said, uh, I'm not going to have anything to do with these guys. When the Bible says, the, this, this is my body, this is my blood, he said, that's what it literally means. It has become the literal body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Calvinists and Church of England folks wouldn't... Uh, wouldn't believe that any more than when Jesus said, I'm the door of a, of a gate into the, the sheepfold. Mm-hmm. So very literal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Chuck. So wh- why don't you tell us what you are doing today to bring the, the church of England or the Anglican church back to its reformation roots? Yeah, thanks so much for allowing me the opportunity to talk about this. I, I'm really excited. Um, I was uh, rector of a church for 40 years, basically, and now I'm doing what is my passion, and that's trying to remind the church, the Church of England and, and Anglicans, of our Reformation roots. So um, we're beginning what we're calling a Center for Reformation Anglicanism, working with some really talented guys. And Matt, you and I were talking earlier about Ashley Knoll, who is working, uh, a huge scholar in uh, in Europe, at working in England and in, and in Berlin. And um, so Ashley's very much behind this. In fact, 15 years ago, Ashley and I talked about me doing this full time mm-hmm. with him. So um, it's a long time dream come true. To, to be working with Ashley and, and Andrew Pearson and Gil Cracky and mm-hmm. uh, some really talented people. So anyway, working out of my home in Houston at this point. Uh, oh, John Fonville, I should mention also. John's very much involved in this. And um, But working out of my home in Houston, loving uh, the opportunity to connect with uh, Reformation Anglicans around the country. Uh, they're isolated. I mean, not every Anglican, not every Anglican in the ACNA is a Reformation Anglican. Right. Uh, so um, connecting with those who are Reformation Anglican in this country and around the world and trying to set up a network, uh, trying to do some thinking through of what it would mean to train a new generation of, of Anglicans in this tradition of, of our Reformation. So Chuck, correct me if if I am wrong here, but basically what it would come down to is that you would basically be in line with the same thinking um, with modern day Reformed churches when it comes to the doctrine, for instance, uh, covenant theology, right, law gospel distinction, yeah. uh, the doctrines of grace, yeah. i.e., Calvinism, um, except for. The ecclesiology, that's where you would really be different. Otherwise, you'd basically be in line with one another, correct? I would say that's, that's right, basically. Um, you know, we, uh, we wouldn't talk about five points of Calvinism right. in the Church of England 
But neither would the conformists who left the Church of England to start Presbyterianism. That didn't yes. come until later, until the Correct. Council of Dort, and then, you know, and all of that stuff. So, so Calvin wouldn't talk about five points of Calvinism. Not that he wouldn't right. agree with them. I mean, I'm sure he would agree with it. Of course. But, uh, but he didn't talk in those ways. So neither would exactly. we. Um, but yeah, I think theologically, we have more in common, Reformation Anglicans have more in common with uh, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, uh, with um, law gospel people and Lutheranism, uh, with, um, with, with the covenant theology that you just mentioned. Uh, we, we've got all of that in common with those outside of our, our church. Exactly. So what specifically are you doing to try to make a dent in there? Like, where are you starting with this? Yeah, yeah so, so great a question. I arrived in Birmingham, Alabama on March the 13th. And if you remember what was going on in our country in March, uh, middle of March, COVID had just hit the fan and um, it was uh, unreal. Uh, the very day that it was that it closed down the country, I arrived to do my new job. So what happened is I had to redefine what I was going to do for the next three months. And uh, so I locked myself in an apartment, uh, literally, uh, and I wrote a book. Um, oh, it's wow. at the publishers right now. It's called Cramner's Church. Um, and then the subtitle is Reformation Anglicanism Then and Now. And uh, Andrew Pearson is writing the foreword to it, and uh, it, it and I've had huge help from uh, Gerald Bray, who is a, a, a fantastic scholar at Wow, excellent uh, Beeson Seminary, Divinity School. Uh, also, Gil Cracky, who is a top-notch Cramner scholar. Um, those guys have been a huge help. Uh, Fitz Allison, who is a father to me and a father to Reformation Anglicans in America has been a, a huge help in helping me put this book together. So it should be out in the next three or four months. So that's a first effort. Uh, also connecting with a, a team of advisors right now, uh, some of these guys that I've just mentioned to you, including John Fonville, are agreed to be advisors for me for this movement. So we're thinking about work on three different levels. One is a pastoral level to begin to pull together a collegial group of Reformation Anglicans around the country and be supportive of one another. If you're in Wyoming doing ministry in a little town, it's a pretty lonely place <laughs> to be a Reformation Anglican. So we'd love to have conferences, uh, Zoom calls, uh, opportunities for people to hear from Ashley and and people like Gil, um, Gillis Harp, uh, who is at uh, Grove City College, uh, and others who have a heart for Reformation Anglicanism. So we'll do that on a pastoral level. Secondary level is we're beginning to talk with seminaries around the country and uh, wanting to put together a seminary track for training Reformation Anglicanism, uh, Ang Anglicans for um for ministry, full-time ministry in the church. So possibly beginning with a doctor of ministry program attached to a seminary someplace. Um, and um, all of this is gonna take some money and some funding, and that's what we're beginning to work on. Uh, so that'd be the second level. And the third level is, uh, you know, we've got an Anglican center in Rome, but it's not Reformation Anglicanism. You know, it's a liberal um, uh, Anglo-Catholic uh, expression of Anglicanism. Why not have a Anglican center in Wittenberg? And uh, there's a huge library in Wittenberg. Um, and um, be wonderful for a place to provide a place for sabbatical leave for serious Anglican uh, students and others. And um, it'd be a great place to go on pilgrimage. You go to England and then you go to, to, uh, to Germany and, and, and then on to the Holy Land, right. maybe. I don't know. You know, I'm just 
dreamy, but all kinds of thoughts in that regard. Uh, and uh, love to have an Anglican presence in Wittenberg as well. Again, Luther's Luther's a, an important part of our ministry, as as is John Calvin in defining what Anglicans have historically believed. So besides Thomas Cranmer, those are probably the two main influences on the church. Yeah, Thomas Cranmer's key because he was the author of all the formularies, uh, homilies, the articles of religion, the ordinal, and the Book of Common mm -hmm. Prayer. So he's key. Um, there are other scholars throughout the, the centuries um, Richard Hooker would be another one. John Jewell would be another one. Um, uh, Lancelot Andrews, another one. All of these, though, would have agreed with the, the basic principles of the Reformation. Scripture, justification by, by grace through faith, and, um, and the priesthood of all believers. Chuck, tell us a little bit about your departure from pietism. We've talked a little bit about that in the past, you and I personally. So tell the listeners a little a bit about that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I'm just sorry that it took so long. <laughs> you know, I, uh, uh, I, I was a Christian for a long time. I came to know Christ in a place in a church that said, if you're, if you're a Christian now, you've got to do these certain things. You got to pray every day. You've got to go out and share the Bible. Uh, Dawson Trotman, you know, you can't go to sleep tonight unless you've shared the, the gospel with someone. You got you got to do all of these things, and the list goes on and on. Um, and uh, and so that's what I taught for years. I I I think I was able to grow churches because I'm a fairly likable guy. Uh, <laughs> But I wasn't really preaching the gospel. I was preaching more, this is what you need to do uh, to be a Christian. So it was really law, you know, and, and since I said it so nicely, I didn't run a lot of people off, but I, but I ne neither was I introducing people to the gospel of God's grace, that when we couldn't live up to all those expectations, that Jesus was sent to do that for us. He lived the life that we couldn't live. And he died the death we deserve to die. So halfway through my ministry, uh, beginning days of my ministry in San Antonio at Christ Church, I began to realize that, that, that I was really preaching an unhealthy message. And so over a period of a couple years, um, people like Paul Zoll and, and others uh, helped me understand the difference between law and gospel mm -hmm. and, uh, and how... To preach law only is deadly, but uh, but the the good news of Jesus accomplishing the law for us when we couldn't is liberating and is pure freedom. So it it took way too many years for me to understand that, and uh, I think the guys that I'm working with on this Center for Reformation Anglicanism have a real heart for people understanding the difference between law and gospel, just like Cramner did. Yeah, Chuck, I understand your point when you say it's liberating. Um, Matt and I both have um, experienced that liberation as well uh, since we've departed from the yeah. pietism. And to, uh, to understand that Christ is not only your justification, he is your sanctification, yeah. And um, he's your all in all, and that's that is liberating because it creates the assurance that you're always lacking uh, with when you're in pietism because you're never because you know your heart, you know you're not truly um, uh, giving your all, you know, when that requirement is yeah. so high. So, yeah, completely understand where you're coming from. How could you ever do enough? I mean, we never, we never could do enough. And so hopefully that would drive us to despair and to Christ who has accomplished it all for us. There's really no way that you can grow in Christ unless you're grounded in the gospel. That's the springboard for our yeah. growth. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. yeah, I always like to see you have to grow in grace, not in guilt. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, that's liberating. 
Being under law teaching is only going to make you bitter and despair. That's all it's going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I so believe that. And again, we see law and gospel in our liturgy. Uh, not all of your listeners will like the word liturgy, but we, we have a liturgy as Anglicans. Well, we do. We love yeah, it. Yeah. It, and, and what yes. we see Sunday after Sunday is law and gospel. And so if the preacher fails, you know, that particular Sunday, you still get it. You know, you still have, <laughs> we still have the creed, you know, and we'll get it right. next week. You know, just be patient with them. <laughs> oh. well, that's a lot less pressure for an Anglican priest then. Well, yeah, it's it's on uh, it's it's on God because if God is uh, is the inspirer of this word, and it and if we look to Him to inspire people's hearts to listen to it to hear it, then that's life changing every time. I think. Yeah, I've also heard the uh, understanding that uh, in the sacraments that it's God serving His people. I'm not, is that the same type of understanding? In the Anglican Church? Yeah, I believe that. I, I believe that. I, I'm not sure we'd put it in exactly those terms, but uh, that's exactly what we believe. Chuck, real quick, can you please explain the Anglican view of sure. the sacraments? This is Calvin's view, obviously. And I would like the audience to really know about your view of the sacraments because it is really the Reformed view. Yeah. A lot of people look at the Eucharistic language and they, like, they think it's Roman Catholic. So can yeah. you give us the, the view of the Anglican Church? Sure, sure. I, I, what I see is it's a balance between uh, Roman Catholic and Zwingli. And Zwingli would say it, it's a symbol, it's a symbolic meal, it's a memorial meal of what happened at uh, the Last Supper and Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it doesn't have any particular efficacy or effectiveness in people's lives um, that's present. Um, Roman Catholics would say that, it, that you get Christ in the bread and wine of the sacrament. I think Calvin and Cramner would say that God communicates his grace to us in the sacrament. We don't know how. We know that in the bread and the wine, as we receive it, that that in that interaction, God's grace is communicated so that a sacrament takes the, the giving of the gift and the receiving of the gift in order for it to be effective in our lives. And so if grace is given in the sacrament, um, then uh, by faith, we accept God's grace, his, his mercy, his grace, all that he is again, and we're renewed in our relationship with Christ. So it's a spiritual presence. It's not a real presence in bread and wine. That makes us different from Lutherans and Roman Catholics. Uh, and it's a, a, a presence that is in us, not localized on an altar in bread and wine someplace. Right. It, he comes to live inside of us. And that's his passion. I think that's God's passion. Like you said, he's communicating his grace. He's not infusing it. Yeah, he, he is, he, that's right. He doesn't make us receive his grace. I mean, that's by faith. Exactly. And, uh, and that's a, that itself is a gift, right? That's correct. So, so um, yeah, something happens in Holy Communion that is much more than just symbolic meal. I think God really does give himself to us in the sacraments, that mm -hmm. these are God-ordained instruments but unless that grace is received by faith, um, we don't uh, benefit from the uh, renewing presence of the Holy Spirit that can come through the sacraments. And it seems that that's the very reason there is a warning in Scripture to people before they take the Eucharist, because it is more than just a memorial. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, Chuck, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about um, the direction of the Anglican Church in its current day, um, where it's heading, where you see it's heading, the differences between, for yeah. instance, the ACNA and other Anglican Church denominations? 
Sure. Yeah, we've touched a little bit on this, um, but I'm happy to uh, to share some thoughts. Uh, do you all know that the Anglican Church Communion worldwide is the third largest denomination? Um, right. So I said denomination. So you still consider yourself one denomination? Uh, you know, I, I I guess I don't consider myself in communion really with the Episcopal Church. Uh, constitutionally, I'm at a very different place from the church, right. so I'm happy to be an Anglican, and uh, right, um, and so happy to be an ACNA, and but happy to be working with Episcopalians still who have a heart for Reformation Anglicanism. See, they're still fighting the battles that, that I fought for 30 years, and mm-hmm. I give them credit. Uh, they're faithful to our formularies. They're faithful to the authority of scripture. And um, I, you know, I just give them a lot of credit. Who knows what's going to happen in five years or 10 years from now. So, but anyway, what, what's happening in the Anglican communion is I think there's been a, a, a movement towards rediscovering what Anglicans have historically believed in the Reformation, in the formularies, um, in the Elizabethan settlement that is defined us. Uh, and so it's a, it's a movement back towards our roots as Anglicans. And I see that all over the world. Real quick, what do yeah. you mean by Elizabethan? Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Elizabeth was the Queen of England for 44 years after Henry... Edward VI, Mary, and then Elizabeth for a long span of time. And in her long span as queen is when the church settled into um, recognizing the the formularies that define the Protestant nature of, of, um, of Anglicanism. Okay. And you have differences within um, even the ACNA. You have people like yourself who are Reformation Anglicans, and then you have people who are more mainline evangelical, and then you have Anglo-Catholics, right? Yeah, there's a smorgasbord. You know, you, you go up to a, uh, a buffet table, and I like, I like green olives, but, but I don't like black olives. You know? <laughs> so I'll, I'll take the green olives kind of approach, you know, and, and we're Americans, so we can choose a blue car over a red car, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So we have the same thing in, in Anglicanism, even in ACNA. And so um, w- what my passion is, is to remind ACNA and also Episcopalians that we have certain inviolable uh, core values that come from our Reformation that we want to hang on to, and they should define us. And so there may be differences in the way some people worship, Some might use guitars, some might use organs, some might use both. Um, It doesn't, those things are secondary to the primary understanding that this is what Anglicans have historically believed. So there are people who I think in ACNA are off track, who are teaching a different kind of religion than what I'm talking about. So there are soteriological differences. There are. There are, but that's because we've wandered away. We've nibbled ourselves away from the core values that define us. And, uh, and you, don't you see that in Presbyterian churches? And Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have debates going on in Reformed churches all the time. There is no monolithic movement within any denomination. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like to think of Reformation Anglicanism as— uh, as uh, a steady uh, grounding for anything else we might want to do liturgically or ecclesiastically. Um, you know, we may have different approaches to evangelism, for example, or to, to, to the way the church is structured. Those things are secondary to the foundational documents that have defined what we believe. And whenever we get away from that, we, we move from a steady foundation. So you see diversity. You may go to an Anglican church that uh, preaches law, gospel, distinction, like what we're talking about, and have, have they have a, a 
sense of the covenant theology that that has defined us from mm-hmm. the Reformation. Um, but there are other churches where you might get a, a a sermon that's very pietistic, you know, how to how to have a good marriage, or how to how to three steps to praying correctly or mm-hmm. something, three, three steps to anything, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> how to properly journal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's the way I used to preach. <laughs> Let me ask you a quick question before we get going. What was your pietistic diet like? Who did he read? And who did he listen to? Oh, yeah, gosh, all the guys. Uh, I, I read Tozier, every single book that he ever wrote. Um, and, he, and a lot of it's great. And, you know, he's uh, A.W. Tozier is terrific. Um, Arthur Pink is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, um yeah i love pink's book on the sovereignty of god that's a great one oh oh he's terrific he's terrific yeah he's he's great um i also read every c.s lewis book everything that he ever wrote uh c.s lewis is wonderful in so many ways but but he's not orthodox and he's um but no one describes the kingdom of god better than through a uh, a cabinet door that opens up and you you see Tumnus and, and the beavers and, you know, this magical land of Narnia. No one describes it better than he does. So he's a mixed bag, uh, but mostly great. And you read, you read Packer, Stott, I'm sure. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. All the InterVarsity guys, uh, InterVarsity was my diet for, mm-hmm. for years and years. Uh, back in the early days. And, and a lot of it's great. And what about those who were into spiritual disciplines? Which authors were those? Yeah, Richard Foster, of course. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, he, he taught me everything I know about uh, journaling, you know, and and I don't journal to this day. So, uh, but, um, but uh, you know, all those guys have a lot to offer and a lot to say and, and have some good things to say, but, mm-hmm. but they all can, can degenerate into a pietistic view of Christianity that doesn't seem to me to be very life-giving in the end at its extreme. Yeah. I just had the privilege of seeing Michael Horton speak at Paramount church last month. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he is an author, really, who I really think is the John Calvin of our day. I really do. I think that he is one of those people who has brought Reformation theology back to the church. And yeah. I hope that um, people like him continue to have an influence. And people like John Fonville and you continue to have an influence on the church. We are thankful for people like you, Chuck. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. I'm a huge fan of Michael's. Um, and uh, every time I hear him, I, I'm thinking to myself, this guy would make a great Anglican. But you know what, Chuck? He actually is from the Episcopal Church originally. I, I understand that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he may be coming back. I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's don't hold our breath. <laughs> well, you know, it'd be great if you guys could have a conference with Mike Horton speaking. Be fantastic. He he would speak the language of Reformation Anglicanism beautifully. Great. That's awesome. Okay, before we get going, Chuck, can you please tell people where they can reach you and where they can get a hold of some of your works? Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Well, I, I think a couple of books that I have written are out of print right now. So it's crazy how Amazon does things. So uh, you can still get them, but I, you don't want to pay $180 to, to get a volume. So I promise you, you don't want to pay that. Uh, a new book coming out in the next six months um, it will be called Cramner's Church. And um, would love for people to, to go to Amazon and grab a hold of it. It's, it's a good book. And it's good because others help write it. And um, uh, so I would encourage them to do that. Um, yeah, I could be reached uh, here in my office, uh, <laughs> surrounded by Michael Horton books and other things. Uh, and so uh, people could reach me at my email, uh, chuckc.sa 
at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I'm also on Facebook and I'd be glad to, uh, to talk with people on Facebook. I always benefit from your posts. Ah, thanks. Thanks. Chuck, you need to send out an email to those who want to subscribe daily and get those posts in their email. I will do that. I will. I will. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you guys. You as well. And Onig, where can we be reached? We can be reached at bttrmin.org. Uh, you can email us at backtothereformation at gmail.com or info at bttrmin.org. Org. Our podcast is on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and now on YouTube. That's a lot. Wow. Everybody, everybody go subscribe to our YouTube channel, please. If you believe in what we're doing, please do that. And we would like to thank you, Chuck, for joining us again for this episode. And we Thanks, would like guys. to thank the audience for tuning in again. And you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. And we hope you join us again next time. See ya.